Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray before we consider it further. Lord Jesus, these are your words that you have written, that you have, by which you have revealed yourself. And so we pray that you would teach them to us this morning. That you, in fact, would open our hearts and our ears and our minds and our eyes so that we might be able to see and hear and perceive and understand so that we might see something of ourselves, but even more importantly, see something of you, of your grace and your mercy to us as sinners. Jesus, we pray that you would do this, and we confident that you will, and we pray it in your name. Amen. My mom has absolutely no idea about computers. She, this, this, is, this is true, she literally does not understand, and I think now maybe she does, uh, what right-click is. And she doesn't understand what copy and paste is. She doesn't know anything about computers. But until about a year and a half ago, she was running a, a, uh, an old Dell, I guess, Windows 98, and it, it wouldn't do anything. And so she got a new digital camera, and she wanted to be able to put her pictures on it, and it just wouldn't work. And I kept telling her the reason it won't work is because that's like a million years in computer years. Uh, your computer's so old. And so I encouraged her to get, uh, she came to Louisville, your parents came to Louisville, and I encouraged her that we're going to go to the Apple store and we're going to buy you an iMac. And as I tried to make my case for this, the thing that finally uh, cinched it for her was this, that with the, uh, and, and you can probably do it with Windows too, whatever, I don't care. But with, with, the, with the Mac, I told her, I can be in Louisville, and you in Meridian, Mississippi, 600 miles away, and we can, uh, I can take over your screen so that you, when your computer goes haywire and you don't know why the screen did what it did or how to get back the settings, you can call me and I can, I can take over your computer. I can see your computer on my screen and you'll see your computer and I can change it for you. Whenever something goes wrong, I can fix it for you. I can do everything, I can do everything that you can't do. And so that, that sealed the deal for her. Uh, she was, she was fine with that, um, and it's, it's, been a pretty, it's been a pretty good ride so far for her. Um, 
And that's a little taste of what we get in this passage. Uh, a little taste in, in this, that the main idea of this passage is that God does everything for us in our salvation because we simply can't. Just like how I have to take care of my mother's every computer need for her because she can't do any of it. God takes care of everything in our salvation for us because we can't do it for ourselves. And so I want to look at three things briefly this morning. We're going to see that Paul talks a little bit about death. He talks about grace and he talks about faith. Those three things. So let's look at those this morning. We see a little something about death in verses 1 through 3. Paul describes what, what mankind is like. He describes you and I in our natural state. Notice the subject of the verbs in the first three verses. It's you and you and we over and over. He's talking about us. He's talking about mankind. And so four quick things about us that we see here. Number one, God tells us through Paul here that we're dead. That we're dead. The metaphor he uses is death for mankind in our natural state. Dead people obviously don't do anything. They can't do anything for themselves. They're dead. And Paul says that in our natural state, you and I are spiritually dead. We don't choose righteousness. We don't choose good. We don't choose Jesus. We can't accept him. We can't repent. We can't do any of those things because we're not able to in and of ourselves. We're dead. We're totally unable or unable. Secondly, though, we see that not only are we dead, though, we're, he describes us as the living dead. The living dead. Notice the verbs. They're all action verbs, or most of them at least. He talks about us following and walking, etc. That we're dead, but we're active. Spiritually dead and yet active in some sense. We're, our spiritual deadness is pictured as actively pursuing evil. Doing evil things. So, you know, you picture, insert any uh, zombie movie that you've ever seen, right? Uh, the picture of, of the living dead. They're, they're, they're not there. Uh, they can't do anything, really. They're, they're, they're checked out. But yet they're active. They're pursuing evil, right? Not only were we not... Not only are we not able to do right and to choose Christ, but we don't want to. We actually, we actually consciously in our natural state don't want the very thing that's going to bring us healing. Um, just this last week, there was a, a news story in Louisville, and you might have seen other stories like this on Oprah or whatever, uh, of a lady who lives in Louisville who lives, she lives in such shocking filth in her house that it's, it's destroying her life. It was, she didn't even want her face on camera because she was so embarrassed uh, by, by this. But her, the inside of her, her house, is, you almost literally can't walk in there. It, it's just filled with things and food from days and days and days ago. And it's filthy and there's animal things everywhere. It's disgusting. And she's, a very, she's educated. Um, she has a she makes a good living and she recognizes the problem but she can't imagine her life without it she said why don't you change she doesn't want to she does but she doesn't 
She, she loves the very thing that's killing her. We're living dead. Thirdly, in verse 3, Paul indicates that this is our, this is our nature. That this is inherent to us. That this is the way we were born. Think about uh, Psalm 51.5. In sin did, did my mother conceive me. This is what we default to. In other words, we don't have to learn how to sin. Uh, really, we can say that this is the only thing that we're, we're naturals at. Uh, if you don't believe me, you can uh, keep the nursery sometime, right? I have a year and a half old. You know, it's cute and beautiful. They're awesome. But, but keep the nursery sometime, and, you, and you'll see, that, you'll see that, you're, that people are born sinful. Nobody teaches their child to take something from another child and say, mine. Right? We don't work on that at the house. It just happens. We're born with it. It's inherent to us. Fourthly, and finally, uh, we see that our deadness deserves wrath. It deserves the wrath of God. That our spiritual deadness and our, our active spiritual deadness deserves punishment. Because we're God's enemies. Romans 5, 6 through 10, and Colossians 1, 21 tell us the same thing, that we're hostile and that we do evil and that we deserve the wrath of God. All right, so what does this mean for us? Let's make a few applications. Well, we're dead, and our natural tendency is to, is to follow that and to love our deadness and to love our sin, the very thing that's killing us. The things that... The things that we think are bringing life to us are actually sucking it out of us. So, uh, for the non-Christian, if you're not a believer and you're here this morning, uh, first, we're glad you're here. And the, the, the people of Grace Reform are, are glad you're here. And so first to you, I, I, would, I would make this application. I would ask you this. Do you, do you see that at work in you at all? Do you see or do you feel that, that deadness? Spiritual emptiness. Do you have any, any sense of that feeling? Do you feel like you're coming undone at the seams? Because if so, I would say that that's, that's good news because God's working in you. And I would encourage you that there's good news for you in Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, to Christians, the application is this, that we have to know that death is our nature. That it's, uh, e even though we're, we're creatures and the old has gone and the new has come, but the old still sticks around, right? Yeah. We're, uh, we're new creatures in Christ, but yet, that old, as Paul says, that old man still clings to our back. And, and yeah. it's sort of, uh, the remnants of sin are still there. And it still has its effects. Much like, uh, if you remember... What was it? About a year, year and a few months ago, when Hurricane, the remnants of Hurricane Ike came through Louisville. I don't know how, how much uh, you experienced it here in Elizabethtown, but Hurricane Ike, you know, hit land in Texas, and a few days later, uh, the effects of it were felt in Louisville. It knocked our power out for nine days. Now, certainly, it wasn't the full effect of the. It wasn't a hurricane, but the, the little remnants, what was left of it, still caused a lot of damage. And that's what's true about us because we're naturally sinners. Even though we're changed, if you're a believer, those remnants are still there. And so it means things like we don't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. 
that we have a healthy, and that's important, a healthy mistrust of ourselves. That we know that that we know that we can tend towards we tend towards the sinful. So we keep that in mind. And it means that sin operates, it tends to operate really slowly. A little bit at a time. And so in those little moments when we think, we have to watch ourselves when we think, is it really, is it really that big a deal if I, re- if I report this little bit of money uh, on my taxes? Because it's, it, I mean, there's no way they're going to notice that. You're going to have a healthy mistrust of yourself. Or we think, is it, really, is it really that big a deal if I stay uh, at the office for lunch to uh, have, have lunch with the new girl, right? Because my wife, after all, wants me to be friendly. We need to have a healthy mistrust of ourselves. Paul talks a lot about death, but he also talks even more about grace. Our second point in verses 4 through 8. Notice how the words change in verse 4. But God. Paul's making a transition. And so now if you notice, who does all the action in these verses? It's God. God is the subject. God is the one doing the action in these verses, and we are the recipients. It's, it's God that saves. It's his initiative and his work because it's all by grace. So if what we said earlier is true, then it's all by God's grace. Everything about our salvation is by, is by God. Uh, like the, one of the common illustrations of, of salvation, I think that we typically hear, uh, is that it's sort of like we're a man at sea, we're drowning in the sea, and uh, the gospel is the life preserver that's been tossed to us, and we need to, we need to lay hold of it. And now look, in one sense, that's absolutely true. And I urge you all, and I urge myself to lay hold of Christ in faith. But ultimately, and that's what we're getting a picture of here from God's perspective, the salvation is by Him, and Him alone, and not by our works. So that in that illustration, what What's really going on is that we are the drowning people that when thrown the life preserver would, would swat it away, would not want it because of our sinful tendencies, our nature. But what God does is he doesn't just offer us the life preserver, but he takes us and he puts it on us and he pulls us into himself because it's entirely by grace. In other words, God reaches inside of us and he changes our very nature. The very problem that we have, how we love what's killing us, God reaches inside of us by grace and changes that. And why does he do that? He does it because he loves us. One of my favorite verses, Deuteronomy 7, 6 and following, where basically God is answering why he has chosen Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Here it is. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Basically, answering the question of why does God love his people? Why does he set his love on sinners? God says, I love you because I love you. 
because I have decided to set my love on you and saved you by grace. And so what that does, since we're dead and it's God that saves us himself, is it brings all the glory to him. It takes us out of the equation, so to speak, in that regard. And we see the beauty of what God's done for us. It's like a picture of that in the Old Testament, a small picture of that, uh, is, is what happens to Gideon, how God uses Gideon. You remember, what was it, Judges 7? God is going up against a huge army. Gideon is going up against a huge army. And God tells him to keep paring down his army. You have too many people. You have too many people. And he gets down to 300 people. And he says, now, now go face them. Why does he do that? He does that because if they had gone to face the enemy, thousands of people with, with any more than they had, when they won, at the end of the day, they would be able to think, maybe, maybe it was us. After all, we're pretty tough. We had enough people. But God sends them with 300 so that when they win, they are left with nothing else to think but the fact the only way we won is because God is good. Because God has done a work that we couldn't. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means this, very simply. that salvation is free. It's a gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to clean yourself up in order to get it. It's absolutely free. And so if, if you're not a Christian, and what we said about our natural state of sinfulness is apparent to you this morning, then, then this is what we have to offer you. This is what God offers to you is himself. He holds out himself to you for free. And then all your most likely, don't want to be presumptuous, but that most likely your, your misconceptions about Christianity are, are not accurate. And we're sorry for that. That Christianity does not mean that, um, that you need to start acting right and, and then come to church. You need to start acting right and then Jesus will say, eh, all right, I see something good in you. You need to come as you are. Bring yourself and your sin to Jesus. It's held out to us for free. And it's really free because Jesus has purchased it for us outright. He's bought it for us. And for Christians, it means the exact same thing. It means that salvation is free, that you have the Lord's favor without earning it. And so that your, your Christian life is not lived as one on the treadmill of performance, trying and trying and trying to live up to what God has done for you. Or, or maybe desperately trying to show God that, that you really were worth it in the end. That you weren't a bad bet. Maybe the other guy was, but, but there's something in you there to, to show for it. It means you get to rest. And that our Christian activity, which, which is required of us and encouraged in us from the Bible, and our Christian activity is one born out of a spirit of gratefulness and thankfulness. And so we work. We really do work in our Christian life. But because God loves us, not so that he will. Thirdly, finally, in verse 8, Paul talks about faith. So how do you receive this gift? Paul's told us that this it's the gift of God. Salvation is for free. And it's a gift. So how do you receive it? How do you receive it by faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. So we receive the free gift of God by the empty hand of faith. We come to God, we come to God with nothing, but with open hands, ready to receive. But there are a lot of misconceptions about faith. And so you actually, maybe you're thinking right now, there, there it is. I knew there was a catch. This is like the free stuff on the internet, right? Seems like it's free, but it's really not. And so here it is, that faith is the catch. I've got I've to work up this faith uh, to be a Christian. Uh, we picture faith as, faith is what spiritual people have, right? It's what good Christians have. It's strength. But I want to suggest to you that that faith is actually, faith is simply trusting. What faith is, faith is not a work. It's actually resting and trusting. Romans 4, 5 says this, And to the one who does not, does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, in Romans, Paul contrasts working and faith. Faith is resting, trusting. And so what we're left with is the fact that it's not the strength of our faith necessarily that saves us, but it's the object of our faith that saves us. It's a big distinction. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. Uh, might be a silly illustration, but I think it's a decent one. That's why I put it here. Uh, it would be like um, three men uh, having to, uh, three men in, in the icy wilderness, and they have to jump from this cliff down to this frozen lake below to escape some sort of situation, right? A bear shaking them or something. And all three men jump down to the ice, and they all three have varying degrees of certainty that the ice will hold them. One of them is, is, completely sure that the ice is thick enough to hold him. The other one is so-so. Uh, Maybe the other guy weakened it a little. And the third guy is, is, has very little faith, very little uh, confidence that this ice will hold him, but jumps anyway. And so the question is, what? and, and the ice holds and they, they flee to victory, right? Or safety. And the question is, what saved those three men? Was it their faith or was it the ice? And I'll suggest to you, right, that it's the object of their faith, the ice, that saves them. Not the strength of their faith. Not to discount having strong faith and working, uh, praying for strong faith. And the fact that God gives us and works in us strong faith. But that ultimately, it is the object of our faith that saves us. And so faith is not an end in and of itself. But it's a vehicle to Jesus Christ. Salvation. I heard a uh, friend of mine growing up heard his pastor say that what you needed to do if you doubted your faith in Christianity, or your faith in God, that what you needed to do was take a stake, a, uh, like a, a tent stake, and write on it the, the day of your salvation when you were converted. Take that stake and go drive it in the ground in your backyard. And that whenever you're tempted to doubt your faith, you go out in your backyard and you look and you see, there it is. 
There it is. I have, I have faith. On that day, I was changed. And I would suggest to you that that's a bad idea. That that's a bad idea because it, it puts faith in the place of Jesus. That we don't even look at our faith and say, I know I'm saved because of that, but we look through our faith, in a sense, and know that I am saved, even though my, the beauty of this is that even is that our faith will waver. Our faith is stronger sometimes, weaker sometimes. But there's something greater than that. It's Jesus Christ. So what does that produce in us? A couple of applications. Well, the text says that it produces in us a true understanding of salvation, produces in us uh, the fact that we're not boastful, that we don't look to ourselves, that there's no room for pride in us because of what God's done in us. Because God has done everything for me, start to finish. It doesn't leave any room for me to be a little bit better than you, to look down at you. And so what that does is it makes us gracious people. Because I'm not trying to fight and claw to get just a little bit ahead of you in front of God. And so what it does is it makes me gracious more and more. And it makes, me, it makes us be able to look at other people and actually love other people. Because they're not our competition. Our old nature's changed and it actually makes us more like Jesus. Verse 10 says that it produces, that that will produce in us good works. Good works. So let me end with this, uh, let me end with this illustration. There's a man named Dave Ireland. Uh, some of you might have read his book. Dave Ireland had a disease that was that was paralyzing him slowly. And it was slowly shutting down his entire body. And so before he died, his wife had become pregnant uh, in the process of his um, degeneration in this disease. And so he wrote a book called Letters to an, to an Unborn Child. And she wanted, he wanted his child, if he didn't live long enough to see his child, he wanted, he wanted his child to know about him and about his mother. And so let me read to you. It's just one paragraph, short. But listen to this. This is, this is hard to read. This is uh, amazing. He tries to describe to his baby what being married to his mother is like. He writes, quote, Your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it, when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house, down the steps, open the garage, put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair and put it in the car, go around to the other side of the, of the car, back it up, get out of the car to pull the garage door down, get back in the car and drive to the restaurant, then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, removes my wheelchair from the car, and unfolds it. Opens my door, spins me around, stands me up, sits me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me in the restaurant, then takes the pedals off so I won't be uncomfortable, then sits down and we have dinner. She feeds me throughout the entire meal, wipes the dribbles from my lips, and when it's all over, she pays the bill, 
pushes the wheelchair out to the car, and reverses the whole routine all over again. And when it's all over and finished, she will say, with real warmth, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. Ireland says, I never know quite what to say. I never know quite what to say. And I'll bet, I think it's fair to say that we know, that that's a man that loves his wife. And he loves his wife because he sees that his wife loves him. Because she does absolutely everything for him that he can't do for himself. Everything that he can't do, she takes care of. But simply because she loves him. And that's a little, maybe more than a little. That's a good taste of what the gospel is like. That God loves us. That how she loves her husband is a little bit like how God loves us. That he, loved, that he has to do everything, everything for us. And yet he does so because he loves us. Because he loves us. And that's what this passage is about. He does everything for us and he saves us by grace through faith. God has set his love on us and he does everything for us. And it's free for us to take. It's free for sinners. How can it be free? It can only be free if someone else is paid for it. Right? It can only be free because Jesus Christ went from the glory of heaven and he gave it up for our sake. That the joy that he, that he endured the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him, Hebrews says. And that joy is me and you. He did it so that his, his prized possession, his inheritance, the inheritance that he longs for, can be raised from death to life. Let me close with this scripture. Isaiah 55, 1. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How can you buy something without money? Only if it's free. And that's the good news for us this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is held out to us for free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have talked about things that by our nature are above us, not only above us, but against us. And we, we trust, Lord, that you will do great works in us, or that, that you might change uh, that you might change us, maybe for the first time, or that you might use your word and your goodness, the goodness of your gospel to change us again and again. Lord Jesus, thank you that you would come and love us for free, even though it cost you a great deal. Thank you that you would consider us more valuable than that. Lord Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Closing hymn is number 56. When all your mercies, oh my God.